Hey, you're listening to the Grace Auburn Church Podcast. In this week's sermon, Lee Cadden preaches from Luke 1 in our Advent series, Unto Us. Well, good morning. As Dave said earlier, we are so glad that you are here to worship with us today at Grace Auburn. My name is Lee Cadden. I am one of our pastors here on staff at Grace Auburn, and it's uh, been such a privilege going into this Christmas season. This is our first Christmas season in a place that we can worship in and call home, and so we're excited about all that God is doing in our midst, uh, the least of which actually is probably a building, and the most of which is all that he is doing amongst us in our lives. Matt, our senior pastor, is currently uh, wrapping up a day in London. They left earlier this week, he and his youngest son, Luke, uh, they left earlier this week to go and encourage, partner with, work with uh, our friend Thomas West, who he and his family uh, and a launch team are getting ready to launch a new church uh, in Queen's Park, London. If you were with us over the summer when we worshiped at Cornerstone, uh, you may remember, or if you weren't there, we had Thomas here with us, who's a former Auburn grad and actually a former student of Matt and April's uh, in the Grace Campus Ministry days in the early 2000s. And he and Matt were actually a part of the same uh, summit church planting residency. And so when he got ready to graduate, felt the call to go and plant a church. Uh, in London, which has become one of the most global uh, and international cities on the planet. I think there's something like 11 million people, and less than 2% of those 11 million people follow Jesus. And a town or city, um, a metropolis, truly, that's that large with that much history uh, and is that far removed as the Lord has brought so many people from all over the world into that place. So Thomas and his family, they are about four months in, five months in now to being in London, and uh, they're having their first worship event, a carols service, uh, in, which is so British, right? A carols service is what they're calling it. Um, but it is in the Queen's Park neighborhood of London. So if you think about them, if you think about Matt and his travels, pray for them as they try to reach and love and serve a community that really wants nothing to do, or they don't know it yet, but wants nothing to do with Jesus and his gospel. So we'll continue to pray for them. I just wanted you to know that, and that's where Matt is. Uh, as we think about what partnerships with Redeemer Queens Park could look like uh, in the months and years ahead. Last week, Matt began our Christmas or Advent series uh, looking at what does it mean that Jesus is born unto us. And he talked at length about the 322 prophecies that the person of Jesus born the way that he was in the time that he was, all of the things, how all the prophecies, the 322 prophecies, and just the mathematical impossibility that it would be that one person could fulfill even a fraction of them, and Jesus miraculously, supernaturally fulfills all of them. And we looked at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, as we landed last week and kicked off this series of what does it mean for us that Jesus coming as a real person in history, what does it mean that he came to us to be a wonderful counselor? What does it mean that Jesus came as the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace? Where we landed was this truth that Jesus was a very real person and only God could fulfill all of those prophecies in the way that he did, leading us to trust in the faithfulness of God in all time to every generation, namely seen in his Son, Jesus Christ. That's where we landed, and that's what our hope is set on as we think about Christmas and his coming year after year after year. The season is a time of just sitting and preparing our hearts, remembering that Jesus had to come at all. 
So oftentimes we get our minds wrapped around Christmas and the Christmas season and it being just for Christmas itself. But Jesus coming at Christmas was just the next step in God's salvation plan and invasion of a people that had completely rebelled against him. And that many years later, Jesus would lay down his life in the same way that he came into this world of his own accord and of his own will. And he would give his life freely unto us that we might know life. That's not just storytelling. That's not just myth. We looked at history fact after history fact after fulfilled prophecy after fulfilled prophecy last week. And it's abundantly true that our hope is set on the truth, the reality, the bedrock that Jesus was a real person who came into this world at just the right time. And so if that's kind of the meta level, the 30,000 foot level of Jesus invading the world that he would invade at that time. This morning, we're going to look at an all-too-familiar story, at least it is in my own heart as I think about Christmas and the coming of Jesus and the way that his coming was proclaimed and announced to a, a 12 or 14-year-old girl. We're going to look at the story of Mary, Jesus's mama, and what did it mean for him to come in the way that he did, and what did it mean for Gabriel to show up and proclaim the things that he was going to say to her, and how does her response both Encourage us, lead us, guide us, give us an example of how we can set and prepare our own hearts for the coming of Jesus this Christmas. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 26. Some backstory here is that uh, a relative of Mary's, Elizabeth, has become pregnant in her old age, and she has become pregnant uh, in just as miraculous as a way, though not the exact same way, but in a miraculous way that... Uh, Mary would become pregnant in our, our text this morning, but John the Baptist is this person that would precede Jesus in all of his ministry, who would proclaim the coming of the Messiah, and it's Mary's cousin Elizabeth who is now pregnant with who will be John the Baptist when he is born and named by his father. And so the context is that you have this very unsuspecting couple of women who are now pregnant, one in her old age who has never been able to have a child, and one who in her early teenage years is not yet in the order of having children and has not yet been married and all of the things that go with the way you're supposed to have a baby in that time. And all of that lands in the midst of a country that is occupied by Rome and a country that uh, has not heard from a prophet in over 400 years and a country that is eagerly and hopefully waiting on salvation or in some cases, and I think possibly in most cases of the average ordinary person, people had just flat out forgotten. But what we know is true about Mary is that she hadn't. We know what was true about her family is that there was an understanding that only God would be the one who could redeem his people, that only God would be the one who could save them, not just from Rome, but from themselves and from their own brokenness and from their own habitual cycle of rebelling and turning from him and turning and focusing on themselves. So the context is Roman oppression, this small town in northern Israel. And it says this in verse 26. In the, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to, a city, to the city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. 
And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative, Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So there's two things to note here coming right out of the gate. The first is who the news does not come to. So if you're a Jew, especially if you're a Jew on the outskirts of Israel, you would have believed or you would have been told or you would have possibly have even been lied to that this Messiah was going to come through Jerusalem in might, in power, and free all of Israel, Israel itself, all Israel from oppression, from slavery, from bondage, from all of these things. But what's important to note is that this news and this coming Messiah doesn't come to Judea at all. It doesn't come to Jerusalem. It doesn't come to the temple. It doesn't come to the religious ruling elite. It doesn't come to the priests. It shows up in the most obscure of places. And not only does it not come to Jerusalem, it doesn't come to the proud. It doesn't come to those who think they know what's going on. It doesn't come to those who think they have it all together. It comes to an unsuspecting teenager in an unsuspecting place at an unsuspecting time. Just look at the way that Luke explains this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. In Galilee, there's a place called Nazareth to a teenage girl promised in marriage who in her poverty has nothing but God to hope for and in. And Mary's faith will become more and more evident as we unpack this story. But I thought it was important for us to note that the news of the coming Savior doesn't show up in the temple. It doesn't come to the priests. It doesn't come to a priest's daughter or someone who thought they might have been entitled in some sort of way. It shows up in the least suspecting place, in the least suspecting time. The greatest news of the greatest birth comes not to the temple in Jerusalem, but to the humblest of women in a back corner of Israel. And I think it's important for us to just take a minute and confess and know and believe that oftentimes that's not my heart. That oftentimes my heart is not marked by humility. My heart is oftentimes marked with pride. But truly the Lord comes in humility, leaving his throne from eternity past to the humble. Mary's belief, though, is not without questions. It's not without concerns. And graciously, Gabriel doesn't come out the gate with, hey, oh, by the way, you're going to have a baby. His name's going to be Jesus. He's going to be the Messiah. He just shows up and says, greetings, oh, favored one. And there's a certain level of, okay, this is weird, and I'm not real sure what's going on. And Mary, just in, in a very real and honest way, is trying to figure out what's going on. And Gabriel says the things that he says to reassure her and, and to, to speak love and life to her. But if you can imagine just for a minute trying to put yourself in her shoes as a 12 or 14 year old girl and having the archangel of the most high God show up in your home on a night like this and say the things that he's going to say, not only is the Holy Spirit going to overshadow you, that's weird because the only other word for overshadow is in the temple. 
or as in the tabernacle as the Spirit of God led the people around by overshadowing it with a pillar of fire and a column of smoke. That same kind of power is going to show up here and now, and that's how I'm going to become pregnant. I don't understand how that's possible. Her questions aren't doubting questions. Her questions are just process questions. She's a 12 or 14-year-old girl, right? She's like, hey, there's a, there's a certain order of things that has to happen here in order for me to have a baby, and we haven't gotten to some of the order of those things yet, but I'm not saying that that's not possible. Graciously, God gives her a sign that even her old-aged relative who has been unable to have a child, that even she is pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit and that her, her son will, in fact, be a part of the ministry and life of Jesus. And Gabriel says to her, nothing, in verse 37, nothing will be impossible with God. If Mary, as is evidenced by her faith as the story unfolds, it unfolds, if she was told the stories and taught the things that she was told and taught over the course of her childhood, she would have remembered, and Gabriel is saying that, that it's actually a remembering of what God said to Abraham when he said that there is, or he asked him the question, is anything too hard for the Lord? Abram, back in the day, had the same situation going on as Elizabeth and Zechariah of they couldn't have a child, and yet God had promised that out of their family would become an entire nation, and out of that nation, the world would be blessed, and the gospel would go forth eventually with the saving and good news of Jesus Christ. And God said to Abraham then and Mary here, is there anything that is too hard for the Lord? And her answer is no, there is nothing, there is nothing that is too hard the Lord. And she said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me. You see, Mary, for her entire childhood and adolescence, had believed that God was who he said that he was. But it's one thing to believe the things that are true about God, and it's a total another thing to trust the things of God and the things that he says. And so for Mary in this moment, there's this belief working together with trust, and we know that to be faith. That it's one thing to know about God. It's one thing to believe that he can do these things. It's another thing to trust him to have done those things on your behalf. And when belief comes together with trust, we walk and live by faith. Mary here in the very beginnings of her pregnancy, in the very beginnings of her relationship with Jesus, in this moment is acting and demonstrating out of complete faith. And she says, God, you are the Lord and I am your servant. And I trust you. Let it be done to me. In this moment, Mary becomes both the mother of Jesus and his first disciple. She becomes the mother of Jesus in an incredible and miraculous supernatural way. But she also puts all of her hope and faith in what God has said that this is actually going to take place. I don't have to understand it. I can't even get my mind wrapped around it. Much less how he's going to be the Messiah, the one we've hoped for, the one we've believed in. I can't even get my mind wrapped around the fact of how I'm going to have this baby. But God, you and your goodness say this is what you're going to do and this is how you're going to do it. And so I, I believe that and I trust you and I want to live by faith, so let it be done to me, your servant, as you say. Mary could have very easily said, nope, I'm not your girl. That's how I would respond to it, right? Well, minus the girl part, right? Like, nope, not your dude. There's got to be somebody else. And Scripture's full of stories where God comes to people, and they're like, no, 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 it's not me. Pick somebody else. Mary, in this moment, having believed that God would do what only God could do when he wanted to do it, in this moment believes that, okay, this is how God wants to do that thing, and I don't understand it but I believe it. I believe that Mary knew in this moment that the Lord comes to needy people. 
Mary knew that she was in need. She knew that she lived on the outskirts in a poor town. She knew that she was not only in bondage to Rome, but she was in bondage to a perpetual, habitual cycle of sin that was embodied in the nation of Israel, continuing to rebel against him. And it was month after month, year after year, generation after generation of people who some would put their hope in Jesus and others who would put their hope in themselves. And Mary acts in faith here in this moment to believe that God was saving his people and he could do it however he wanted to. And she believed by faith that he would do that. And she believed by faith that God comes at Christmas unto needy people, those who know and believe that they are in need of a Savior and that without him, without him intervening, without him doing what only he can do, that we are without hope. A commentator that I read this week said that the incarnation, the coming of Jesus as a man, the incarnation, salvation, resurrection, and Christmas are not for the proud and the self-sufficient. They are for the needy. They are for those who know without him, they are without. Mary hears all of these things. She believes by faith. She tells Gabriel, let it be done to me. He disappears. And like any normal, sane 12 or 14-year-old person would do, or any age person would do, you've been told this thing about your relative. And so it says that she makes haste, which I love that translation. But it says this in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Young Mary needed to see Mary. I mean, needed to see Elizabeth. She had been told by Gabriel she had been given this sign, and so she went to see this sign. She went to know and believe that this had actually happened, that things were working themselves out the way that God said they would. And I believe that she also went because she needed the encouragement. Because if you're Mary, you're looking down a not-so-good sentence of your reputation, not only your life, right? She's looking at what could be her future, and she's believing that God is going to do what only he can do. But she goes to Elizabeth in search of encouragement, and she finds all of that and more in her proclamation of who God is and what he's done over her and in her life. And she says to Mary when she shows up from the very beginning, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary, you are blessed because you believed. Mary, you are blessed because you knew that God would do what he said that he would do. Mary believed in her heart that God would fulfill his word. She believed that God would do what he promised. And she proclaims from the bottom of her soul that you are blessed for believing that. And then the waiting begins. Mary has gotten her head wrapped around it as much as she can. She's got her heart in it. She believes by faith. She's walking by faith. She's now with Mary. God's confirming all the things that he said he was going to do through the things that are happening in her family. And the waiting begins. But her waiting begins with an incredible moment of worship, one that would arguably be one of the most famous, famous sections of Scripture, if not one of the most famous prayers in Scripture. It's called the Magnificat. It's Mary's proclamation of the magnificence of the goodness of God in the midst of her waiting, in the midst of her questions, in the midst of her unknown. This is how Mary responds in worship. And it says in verse 46, My soul magnifies the Lord. 
And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, and he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her for about three months, and then she returned to her home. Just an overwhelming sense of, God, you are everything. God, you are enough. I want to unpack these scriptures, these verses from verses 46 through 55 a little bit and kind of examine them and how they evidence Mary's faith and her soul and how we can glean from them as we think about how we respond to God and how we see him in our own lives. In verses 46 and 47, she talks in several different ways about her soul and her spirit magnifying the Lord and rejoicing in him. Paul would use similar language in several different letters where he talks about my soul, my spirit, my body worships and rejoices. Basically, he's saying the same thing that Mary is saying here, that from the very depth of who I am, from the very core of my being, with all that I am, I magnify and worship the Lord. Jesus would say the same thing or something similar when he talks about how it is that we are to worship God. He says that those who worship God must do so in spirit and in truth, meaning we should worship God as he has revealed himself, but we should worship God from our whole life, that everything we do should be in response to who God is. Here we talk about worship being a whole life response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That if it doesn't infect and affect every area of my life and the way I respond to adversity, the way I respond to this, the way I think about my finances, the way I think about my time, the way I think about my family, the way I think about orienting everything, that I am not worshiping him as I should. And Mary, in this moment, says, my soul, my spirit magnifies the Lord and worships him. Her waiting begins by a trustful worship of who he is and what he is going to do. She says that her soul magnifies the Lord. The reality is you can't magnify the Lord in reality. Like He is as big as he is. He never moves. He doesn't change. He has always been the same, and he will always be the same. But what she means is that in her soul, as she worships him, responds to him, sees him as she ought to, that he is then magnified in her own heart. It, he is then magnified above all the other things of this life. The truth is, if we'll just set our mind on Jesus, if we'll think about the things that are above, if we'll think about Jesus more than we think about everything of this world, then everything of this world becomes right-sized. If it's worry or anxiety or fear or peer pressure or fear of man or what this person thinks or that person thinks, all of those things become right-sized in our life when Jesus is right-sized in our life. When we see him as he is, as scripture reveals him, and not as the world tells us he is at Christmas. Not how Hallmark portrays him as it is in commercials, but how scripture truly represents the coming king unto us at Christmas in a way that only he could. Mary magnifies him because she knows and believes that that's the only way she's getting through not only the next 10 months, 
but through the rest of her life. And her life would be marked with this kind of faith and understanding that it would be her son who would lead the ministry that he led. It would be her son that would hang on a tree, that it would be her son that would give his life. All of her life would be characterized by looking at what God was doing, not understanding why, and saying, but I trust you, and I love you, and I worship you from the very bottom of who I am with everything that I am. I magnify you. I worship you. I rejoice, Jesus, Father, God, in you. She goes on and talks about how God has dealt with her, how he has loved her, how he has cherished her, how he has treated her, says that you have looked on my humble estate. Jesus, you saw, Father, you saw in sending your Savior the way that you wanted to do it. You saw my humble estate. You saw my brokenness. You saw my need. You saw my neediness. You saw that I didn't have it fully together. You saw that I wasn't the ideal candidate. You saw that I wasn't the picture-perfect person who had their life perfectly compartmentalized, but you saw my neediness and my humble estate, and you came to rescue me. And I am blessed. And she says this phrase that would be taken way out of context depending on your religion and back and upbringing, but this, context, this, this, this statement of from now on every generation will call me blessed. What Mary knows in this moment and is operating out of by faith is that people will call me blessed because I have the living God inside of me. For her, literally, has Jesus inside of her. People will call me blessed not because there was anything in and of my own self that deserved this, but because of him who had invaded my life, who had saved me, who had redeemed me, who had come on a mission for me. They will call me blessed because I was the first person that knew him. Mary believes that she would be blessed because he has done great things for her and that he would continue to do great things for her, and she deserved none of them. And she believed that she was blessed because of it. In verses 50 through 55, she shifts from her own personal understanding of her humble estate, of her neediness, of her depravity, and she looks at really a a prophetic view of what's going to happen, what has happened by the work of God and what will continue to happen through the life and ministry of her son. And just to kind of recap those verses, she says this, that he is holy, mighty, merciful, faithful from generation to generation. He is strong. He wrecks the proud, exalts the humble, provides for the hungry, and is the helper of his people. Mary believed that the coming of Jesus unto her in this moment in her life and unto all of us who would believe that it mattered greatly and how we respond in faith, belief plus trust in our life, how we respond by faith to his coming matters greatly. And I believe that Mary's life in these first few days, weeks of her pregnancy and kind of setting her hope as such a young person and setting her hope on the faithfulness of God, I believe that her Life is an example and a, and a means by which we can look and hope for our own lives to be postured in a similar way. And I believe that the coming of Jesus to her then and the coming, to us, the coming of Jesus to us now at Christmas are not dissimilar to, uh, to one another. In Isaiah chapter 9, it talks about how unto us, unto us is born a, a Savior, unto us a Son is given, and he will be called a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting Father and a prince of peace. And I believe that the world reads that, and and when I first read that, this is how I read it, that the Lord comes unto us. And that's how most of Israel would have read this, that the Lord comes unto us, right? 
not to the rest of the world, but unto us. What Mary reframes for us is that the Lord comes even unto us. Those of us who have not. Those of us who don't have it together. Those of us who are about to lose our reputation completely. And our fiance's reputation is about to go completely. That unto us is born a son. Unto us a savior is given. Jesus said something very similar as he began his ministry and preached the greatest sermon the world has ever known. When he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit means those who know they are needy. Those who recognize and see their depravity and their inability to do anything about it. Their gap from God, their distance from God is too great. Blessed are those who see that and know that they are poor in spirit and he is rich. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Mary believed, and I believe it's our call to believe that Jesus comes unto us when we confess our need for him. And so I pray that we would posture ourselves this way. Even if we're following Jesus and celebrating Christmas and his coming for the 35th or 40th or first time in our life, would we posture ourselves to believe that unto us is born a Savior? And we don't deserve it, yet we have him all the same. Mary also trusted the Lord. She believed in God's faithfulness in all time to every generation, seen ultimately in the face as he would be born, seen ultimately in the face of her son, Jesus. She believed in God's faithfulness. She believed also that God fulfills his promises, that all of these scriptures that had been spoken about him, all of these prophecies that had been spoken about him, they weren't just fairy tales. They weren't just out there. They were very real, and they were going to find their fulfillment in her son. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 15. He says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant, he was born unto us, to the circumcised, the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Jesus came at Christmas to fulfill the promises given. And Mary knew it. She saw Gabriel that night, freaked out a little bit, was calmed down appropriately, was told how things were going to go, and said, I don't get that. I don't know the how. The how is absurd. I don't get it. But I believe that you are good. Mary trusted him. Her belief plus trust led to her walking by faith. And I believe that Christmas means Jesus came to fulfill the promises. That Christmas means that God can be known and trusted And so if you're kind of wrestling with either one of those, I'm here to say to you that, yes, you can, in fact, know him if that's the gap, but you can absolutely trust him because he alone is worthy of our whole life. He alone is worthy to be praised. Mary believes it is because of her neediness that she trusts him to give her life to him, and then she then calls herself both by Elizabeth and in her own prayer and understanding, she calls herself blessed. And I've said this once, I want to say it again, that she doesn't see anything special in and of her own life. No girl from Nazareth would have seen anything special in her own life. What she sees as blessed is the fact that she believed that God had done all that he had for the people of Israel and that he would do all that he would do in this Savior that is growing inside of her belly. Not only did she believe those things about God, but she also had Jesus living inside of her. 
Mary is the only person that gets to claim the person of the Son living inside of her. But for the rest of us, we can believe that God has done what he said he would do and that he continues to do what he promises to do and that ultimately in glory we will see him on the throne and we will, with all of the angels and all of the creatures covered in eyes, as Matt loves to talk about, we will join in and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. We are blessed because that is the promise and that is is our future, and we are blessed just as Mary was because we have God living inside of us. Different person, same God. We believe that he is who he says he is and that he will do what he promises that he will do, and the living hope of Jesus is in each of us who has believed. And so in the same way that young Mary said, I am blessed, we too are blessed. And so if you're struggling to wrap your head around what does it mean for me to follow Jesus in the midst of the chaos, or you're just like, Lord, please help me get through Thursday when that's my, my last final, and then I don't have to think about anything else, wherever it is that you find yourself wrestling, struggling, just hoping to get through today, believe that the living God is inside you, and you have more than enough in him. And that unto us is born a Savior. We are blessed, and we trust him. Lastly, Mary because of who God was and because of what he was doing in her midst and in her own heart as she was learning to love and serve and worship him as she ought, she magnified the Lord. And I believe the same is true for us if we would set our eyes where they should be, that we too will magnify Jesus in our life. I was reading a, uh, an Advent devotional by John Piper called The Dawning of Indestructible Joy, which is a fantastic name for a book. If you want one, there's one at the welcome desk for you. But I was reading this book earlier this week, and the whole idea of the fullness of Christ at Christmas is this idea that he has over and over and over again been saying throughout the course of this book in a way that only John Piper can with so many words. But I kind of boiled down to this idea that if I would magnify Jesus the way Mary is magnifying Jesus, then I would experience the fullness of Christ regardless of my situation. Paul puts it this way as he's praying for the Ephesians in chapter 3. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, because God lives in us, right? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I pray that as we learn to posture our own hearts and say that unto us a Savior is born and we learn to trust him in the waiting regardless of our situation because we all have our situations and we all have our brokenness and we all have our pain and I don't believe that Mary or me or our scripture minimizes any of those things. But Mary's response in the midst of her, well, very real chance of, of losing her life because of what's happened outside of marriage in that moment, if she can put all of her hope in Jesus, if she can put all of her trust in him and set her eyes where they ought to be and magnify him above all of her current situation and believe with everything inside her that unto me, unto me is born this precious Savior. And I believe that we can do the same. That we can look at our own life and say, yes, I am blessed because of who you are and what you have done and your spirit inside of me. 
And I pray that God would dwell richly in our hearts as we prepare our hearts for Christmas and that, that we would worship him as Mary did, believing and trusting and obeying and that we would then experience the fullness of Christ as we confess and believe, Jesus, that it is unto us a broken and undeserving people that you came at Christmas. And that is our hope and that is our prayer. Amen. We pray with you. We're so glad you listened to the Grace Auburn Church podcast. There's so much happening in the life of our church, and we could not be more excited about all that God is doing. For more information about ways that you can connect within the life of our church, go to our website, www.graceauburn.church. Thank you.